What's up, everybody? Sultan of Strangles in the house, a.k.a. the Kimura King, a.k.a. the Ayatollah of Ankle Locks. Um, guys, there is a gym in Warwick, New York. Warwick, New York is a very uh, small town, kind of in the middle of nowhere, very hard to get to, not really close by any highways. And in Warwick, there is a gym called Henzo Gracie Warwick. And it is insanely successful. It is packed. It is such a nice gym. And they have a lot of competitors that do really well in tournaments. And I ask myself, okay, you know, you think to yourself, hey, I need a successful gym. I need to be in New York City. I need to be in LA, etc. No, you could be anywhere in the world, even if it's not that populated. But if you have a good product... If you are a good teacher, if you are a good businessman, if you are passionate about what you do, you will be successful. Um, In this episode, I learned so much. And I hope that even if you're not a jujitsu gym owner, if you're a jujitsu practitioner, if you're a business owner, I highly suggest that you take the time to listen to this episode And you pick Dave's brain a little bit because he's definitely a very unique guy, workaholic, OCD, very passionate. And those things together are are a really dangerous combination for success. So I learned a lot. And what an awesome episode. What pissed me off is Anchor, man. I had to like restart the episode three times because it just got cut off. Pissed me off. I really got to figure out what to do with that. And I definitely want to start do video podcasts again. So if you want to be a part of that and help me with that, I'd appreciate it. But man, what an amazing episode. What a wealth of knowledge. Hope you enjoy it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Pretty sure David has a wealth of information for all of us. So uh, welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Awesome. Yeah, so... um, the first, the first question I have for you, because I see you run a very successful school. Thank um, you. Everyone says, oh, you know, I want a packed school. Uh, you know, I probably got to open up somewhere in Manhattan or Los Angeles where there's a lot of people. But I've been to Henzo Great. I've been to Warwick, the town, and it was very far from me, about an hour. And it's, and it's not really in the most populated of areas. And you have a packed school all the time. So I wanted to know, what was your secret to building up such a successful program? Uh, so first up, the, the reason why I chose Warwick is because I, I don't live that far from there. I actually live on the New Jersey side, but I literally live 10 minutes from my academy. So it's such an, an easy commute. And uh, I was walking one day in Warwick and we were in you know, the Main Street downtown section and you know, this is going back, you know, eight, nine years ago. And I told my wife, I said, I will open up a jujitsu academy here and it will be successful. And um, I wasn't going to take anything else other than that. Um, And what you said is true. Like it's not a heavily populated area. There's not uh, some huge population. It's not some big city where we could draw from a lot of people. We're drawing from a very, very close area. Um, But what we have delivered is, an amazing product, you know, like even when I first opened up, there was another school not too far away and everybody was like, Oh man, that's crazy to try to open up when there's another school. And I wasn't faced because I knew I was going to bring in something different. I knew, um, you know, I had more to offer 
Um, and, and, and it was going to be, I, I just, I wasn't going to let it fail. I knew it was going to be a hit. That's really cool. So, um, you know, I had a similar story. People are like, why, why are you opening up a jujitsu school in North Jersey? It's the, it's such a densely populated area with so many jujitsu schools. And I told them, you know, I'm going to be delivering a different product. You know, I do mostly no gi, so it's my school's mostly no gi and I compete a lot. So it's going to be kind of competition oriented. Um, and it's growing every day because of that, because it's a bit of a niche market. It's no gi, competition oriented, uh, kind of sets itself apart. So I wanted to ask you, you said you delivered a very um, a different product. What would you say is different? Um, the difference between Henzo Gracie Warwick and the surrounding schools or in general? I, w- I would say number one, um, uh, I have, I'm a workaholic, number one, and I have OCD, which is like two problems. Like, and mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> both of those uh, have also contributed to the success. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, one of the things I do is uh, I teach every class on that entire schedule, except for Wednesdays. I take, I have, I have, we're open all seven days. I teach six, teach every class, including our little kids. I teach every, you know, I teach all of the little kids classes, the five, six, seven year olds, our kids are broken up. Then I teach the next age group. And then I teach every fundamentals class, never uh, all the advanced classes. I take no days off except for Wednesday. And when I'm not there on Wednesday, um, it, it works out perfectly. I have another professor, professor James Baxter. He's been in the sport forever and, uh, he's like my right hand man and me and him just click really well. So when I'm not there on Wednesday, it runs of him. He knows what we cover for the week. He shows stuff and he's, you know, he's a much bigger guy than me. Uh, you know, he's probably a 250 pound guy. So his moves are a little bit different. So, and teach the little kids as our little kids and teenagers move into the adult program. It's a transition for them. And I, I think being there every single day um, had really, you know, caused the school to explode. The other thing we do is there, there's a lot of things we do that are probably not very popular uh, amongst other schools. Number one is, um, we have a curriculum. We have a 14 week curriculum that we follow okay. so that it's not just randomness. Like, so, you know, like week one, the legs and, you know, we build upon it. So like, we'll start with like the, the very, uh, you know, basic single leg on Monday with the fundamentals class. It'll be Monday, Tuesday. Then maybe we'll show what happens if they bring their leg to the outside. So the entire thing is curriculum is written out and built upon itself. Now we are flexible. There are times that, I have to make adjustments. Um, and yeah, I, we, we go to a tournament and something happens and I'm like, okay guys, well now for this week, we got to change it up a little bit. We got to do this. But for the most part, we stick to a curriculum that's meant to build upon itself. Now it's not one of those curriculums where you get like tested or anything like that. It's just, I feel having that strong structure and showing how things lead into one another uh, works extraordinarily well. And I, I think one of the issues we spend so much time on defense, we spend, of our time training defense and without a curriculum, I think that gets left to the wayside because it's it's not cool to teach defense. You know, nobody, you know, if you're just going to have random instructors showing stuff, no one's going to generally come in and show defense. Um, We have entire weeks devoted to, uh, 
back defense, mount defense, side control defense. Uh, so we spend 50% of our time concentrating on our defense. And I think that's made um, a huge uh, change. The other thing we do is very, very, like, uh, it's like a family. And I know you hear this often from jujitsu schools, but we are very, very family oriented. Like if people, you know, when people need something or if something happens to somebody and, you know, they get surgery, I'll fill out a card, uh, you know, we'll pick up a gift card to BJJ Fanatics to keep the person interested in the sport. Every Friday night, we go out for team dinner. We train really hard, and then we go out for team dinner. Um, and then it's it just really seems to build a very strong bond. Also, I'm there all the time. My kids are there all the time. I have five kids, so my kids are there all the time. So I just think it helps with the bond, you know, and, and we keep everybody extraordinarily tight, and we don't lose members. You know, that's the big thing. Like, everyone stays because everybody loves coming. We really do have an amazing atmosphere. And the other thing I think it differs from the average jujitsu school is we treat it more uh, like a wrestling school almost. Like it's a tough room to be in. It is tough. There's no doubt about it. Now it's for everybody. Fundamentals is it like fundamentals is obviously the basic stuff and people will stay in fundamentals and they'll, you know, they'll do that. But once we start hitting the advanced Randori classes, it is rough in that room. It is a tough, tough room to be in. And I think, that's what's led to a lot of our competition success. Interesting. So it's so funny, as you said, that I kept seeing things that you and me have in common. Um, I also run my school very much. So my school is pretty much like um, I have the wrestling mentality, but for jujitsu, you know. So if you want to chat and have a good time after class, that's cool, but not during training. Um, it's, it's a tough room. And as far as the curriculum, I do the same thing with the curriculum. I have my curriculum done at the beginning of the week. But I want to ask you, your 14-week curriculum, week 15, do you repeat the same curriculum again? or Then we go back to, to – yes, we, so we go back to week one. So it's not the same moves necessarily. It's the same concepts. Ah. So, for, for instance, week one is single leg takedowns because we, we go over takedowns every day. So it's single leg takedowns and bottom guard. Week two would be double leg takedowns and top guard. Then week three, we'll go into like front headlock, you know, go behinds for our takedown and top side control. Cause it's almost like the natural transgression of jujitsu or progression of jujitsu. Then in week four would be, you know, might be takedown defense and bottom side control. And it's, we go through it that way. So that we hit week 14 i know for a fact week 14 is submission defense so we wrap that up then week one starts again and we go over bottom guard it's not the same moves it's just the same concept interesting you know I, i'm i'm gonna probably implement that same idea um going on a concept based uh you know multi-week thing i just kind of in the beginning of the week i i sit down i'm like what do these guys need to work on and i'll make my curriculum based off of that but i like the fact that you have a cycle um, now, one more thing. You said you focus a lot on defense. As, as a gym owner, for me, I believe in defense and I believe in fundamentals. But it's real tough when you have these young guys coming in and want to train and they want to learn flying triangles, inverted heel hooks. But I know that they need to work on their fundamentals. Do you run into a lot of that? People kind of getting bored with the fundamentals. They want to learn the advanced stuff. How do you 
get them back on track? So every single day we have a fundamentals class. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where, you know, almost all of our beginners start. But oddly enough, we have a lot of our advanced guys and girls that also still will take fundamentals. Mm -hmm. Then we have our advanced class, which is for our higher ups, which we go over more advanced techniques. And then what we do that's a little bit different is I separate my live training from our instructional time. So let's say advanced class uh, is an hour and a half, which it generally goes over, but let's just say an hour and a half. The first 45 minutes is only instructional stuff. So like it's situational live. And the reason why I do that is I tell them I want them to have the freedom to lose in that wow. time. So when we do advanced, we'll, let's just say this week we're going over guard passing and I'll show like an over underpass or something. So what I'll do is then we'll do all situational live from the over underpass and top guys are going to lose. If they're not a very good over underpasser, they're going to get submitted. They're going to get swept. And we have, that's okay because it's instruction time. Like we're trying something new. You're going to lose to even lower ranks and you don't have to feel pressured to beat them because we're trying all new stuff and we'll do situational live specifically from that position. It helps both people out. The bottom person gets to learn over under defense. The top person gets to work. They're over under offense, but there's no pressure on their higher ups. So they don't feel like they have to win every single round. It's okay for them to lose because they're just trying out new things and developing new techniques. Then we have our live rounds after, which is obviously not situational anymore. It's, it's full on, you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 minute goes, depending on whatever we have coming up. And what they'll do is in that point, you know, obviously that be, you know, I still tell them to try new stuff, but it generally becomes a little more competitive there and they want to do well. They don't want to win, but they had that previous 45 minutes to feel okay, I can practice all new stuff. And if I lose, there's no pressure. I really don't care. The other thing I find it good for is as you get older, we got older guys, we got, you know, people 50, 60, they, they, they've been through the program. They've been with us two years. So they know all the fundamental stuff. Now they want to take the advanced class, but they don't want to go live because they're older. Their body is trying to preserve their bodies. They don't want to go live every day. So because it's broken up into two classes, they could do the advanced, they could develop and learn new techniques. And then they could say to themselves, I don't want to roll live for 45 minutes to 50 minutes to an hour. So now's my time to go. And we, you know, they could leave and they don't feel that they have to stick around and train. And then it allows them to still continue to grow and, you know, not have to go live all the time. Interesting. I like that. So it kind of gives you the, it gives you the opportunity to go all out and work hard, but the, the older people or the newer people, they have the, they have the option of, you know, taking a back seat and just, um, you know, allowing their bodies to recover, which, which I really like. Um, yes. now speaking of advanced, um, you know, and competitive, the way I found out about your school is through your students. Um, I saw Jordan at a lot of tournaments that I did. And then I started seeing Gabby at a lot of tournaments and they do really well. They're usually winning. And then um, I had the pleasure of meeting you a few times. You're always there coaching. Um, how important is having a good competitive team uh, for having a successful school? Some people say it's not that important. Some people say it is important. And how, how seriously do you take your job coaching in competitions? And what does that mean to you? So that's a whole lot of questions. I'll answer first. I think 
it has to reflect you and what your goals are. I there, there's a lot, and you know this. There's lots of schools out there that are highly successful that do zero competitions, and there's even yeah. schools that are highly successful out there, uh, and they don't do any live training anymore. Really, they just do, you know, more just like drilling and and things like that. And if that's what they're out for, and that's what they're looking for, then yes, you can consider them a successful school. Then there's other schools that have a lot of competition guys and girls, and that's what they're looking for, and they consider themselves successful. So in our case, when we set out, what we wanted to do was we wanted to have a very, very strong competition presence. That was my goal. I said, we're going to have a very, very strong competition because even if people don't compete, which we have, just like every school, we have a lot of people that don't compete, but they still get better. We have a huge competition presence, but we still have count, countless people that don't want to do tournaments, but they feel like part of it, and they are part of it. They help. They chip in. They do all these training rounds, lots of training rounds with full-time competitors, and there's no reason for them to. Uh, they just want to keep getting better, and it's a slightly different philosophy. Like My goal is if we can get the worst person better in the room, if we got 40 people in the room and I can get that worst person slightly better, the trickle up effect by the time it gets to that front row of all top tier competitors, the progress is amazing. What most places will do is they'll just focus in on their few competitors. We don't, we treat everyone the same. You know, we spend the same amount of time with everyone. That person that's the least skilled, we try to get them, even if they could just defend one submission a little bit better, the trickle up effect by the time it hits that top row of the, the full-time competitors, it's amazing. And then everyone feels part of it. Um, even the people that don't compete, they feel like, and they are part of it. They, they do, like I said, so many rounds with these guys and girls. And uh, there's so many people we have in that room that are fantastic that you'll never hear of. They never want to compete. They don't want to do it. Um, but they're big time contributors. Now, as far as the coaching, um, uh, aspect goes at tournaments. It, it's a huge factor. You have to be there. Well, once I decided to become a full-time coach, uh, you know, you have to become selfless. You know, you can, the, the, you can no longer be selfish anymore. It's full-time selfless. And that's part of being a coach. Once I made the decision to do so, I had to say, you know, I, I have a busy life. I got five kids, I got a wife and, you know, I had to explain, you know, and they, they fully understand that this job entails me being available 24 hours a day, seven days a week at all times. Um, and that means anywhere. I mean, I just got back from vacation a couple weeks ago. I was in Universal Studios in Florida. I'll be on, I'll be online waiting for rides and I'm answering the phone. I'm taking text messages. Um, I was with my family. We're, we're eating dinner. I can tell you exactly where I was eating dinner in Moe's Tavern and uh, Simpsons World and, and Universal. But we had several of our, of our competitors had super fights. So what do I do? I have one of our members put it on, uh, you know, on their phone and, and live feed me the matches. That's how involved I am with the coaching. I don't miss any of the coaches at any events. I'm at every single event with my guys and girls because I, I feel that coaching in the event is extremely important. The other thing I never do is a lot of coaches. I, I hear this all the time. They'll bitch. They'll be like, I hate these things. I can't, but what you don't understand is there is somebody who prepared eight weeks for this tournament. And this is their first tournament. And this means everything to them. And as a coach, if you say this sucks, imagine 
the, the, the sunken feeling that your athlete is now going to have when you yourself say, this sucks. I can't believe we're doing this. Like that is such a heartbreaking thing to say. I never say that. I do not leave until this tournament is over. I never leave early. I am there the entire time and I enjoy every moment. That's love being there. I can't get enough of it. Like when the tournaments, I, I've been there 12, 13 hours and it doesn't phase me. I, I, that night I get home and I watch more film. You know, I have an obsession with, uh, you know, the sport of grappling and it shows, but yeah, being there as a coach is an extremely important feat. Like even every, I try to coach, much as I can. Obviously, sometimes we have two and three people up at a time, and then I have you know completely competent um, coaching staff to help me out. They're fantastic. Everyone I have that helps me out is fantastic. And then when it comes to coaching, my coaching style is I'm not there screaming. You know, I, I don't believe in that. I don't think it works. I'm very calm and collective, and I try to give my athletes three to four word phrases that will assist them in the mat. I always say. Okay, shoulder crunch on the right side. Grab the left arm, underhook. I give them very precise directions in a very calm manner without screaming. And I'll usually say their name first. So, like, let's say Gabby's competing. I'll say Gabby because they're so used to hearing their name. It's a high. I'll say underhook the left side. And it's a very simple phrase, but I find if I say their name right before the phrase, they're able to hear instructions much clearer. One of the things that I do, thing I do is I never put down the opposing athlete under any circumstance. I have, you will never hear this or that. I am not out there competing. I am a coach. And I don't feel like there's ever a need to disrespect the other competitor. I will never say anything derogatory about the opposing competitor because the two athletes want to go out and talk shit to one another. I can care less. Those two guys, those two guys are fighting. They can do whatever they want to one another. Coach, I stay. Ever say anything disparaging about the other athlete ever. I will, you'll never hear they're breaking down. What I will say is, hey, pick up the pace, pick up the pace. And that just means I want to see my athletes starting to push them a little bit harder. Maybe I do see that they're looking a little fatigued, but I will never outwardly call that. I just don't want to, I, I just don't feel it's my place to disrespect the other competitor. I'm not the one fighting him or her. You know, the other person is. So it's those two, those two can go at it if they want. Yeah. You know, I've been on the other end of that. I've been on the receiving end of that. Um, like, and uh, in, in, I'm about to be choked, and the coach is like, oh, finish him off. He's turning blue. Luckily, you know, I was able to get out and win. But it, it really sucks when you see an academy owner that's supposed to be a professional, and they're talking shit to some competitor who's, who's like, maybe it might be their first or second experience competing, and now they're, like, going to have a bad taste in their mouth, you know? For me, I, I really enjoy, I love coaching. Um, and for a while I was very, I was concentrated on the competition aspect. So I was neglecting my, uh, the hobbyist part of my gym. And I've been really focusing more on that lately to get everybody involved. Um, another thing that I notice about your school is I tell people, if your school is just a bunch of meatheads, no one's ever going to take it seriously. 
you need to have a serious program for the people that that just want to train you need to have a serious kids program you need to have a good women's program and the your female competitors have nothing but great things to say about you so i wanted to ask you what are some tips you could give to an academy owner like myself who wants to build up their women's program so um uh well first off before i continue mike i have seen you compete before and i i don't know if you have a nickname yet but uh i think you should really become possum because seeing for you the victory an amazing ability to just come back and just come out with the win. Thank you. I think, are you talking about the uh, Fuji Allentown event? So, no, multiple times I've seen it. I've seen <laughs> it so it, you always somehow manage to pull out the win, but you'll be faced to do so. And no, uh, it, it is awesome to watch. I, I appreciate that very much. You know, um, people ask, you know, what is it like training with Gordon Ryan and all those guys? They think it's fun, but it's actually really miserable. But the one thing I was able to really develop was my defense. Cause obviously I'm not going to be pulling offensive moves against those guys, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. And then as far as the women's program, um, so before I opened up, um, you know, I get along very well with Emily Kwok. I don't know if you know Emily. She won ADCC for the women many years ago. Uh-huh. Um, she won the world. She runs a very successful um, uh, Marcelo. I, th- I believe it's – I don't want to misquote, but I believe it's a Marcelo Garcia um, a cat, like, um, uh, like kind of like affiliate-linked academy or she's under yeah. Marcelo down in South Jersey. And I spoke to her before – up my program and uh, she was kind enough to have like a half hour conversation with me and, and one of the questions that came up is women's jujitsu and uh, I said hey should I do a women's class and she was like no absolutely not she's like you should do it as a regular class she's like the best advice I've ever received uh, and what uh, I wish I could take full credit for it, but I can't. I have to give it all to Emily. What she had said was, if you separate it, it starts to become the haves and have-nots. And and the women's class becomes a joke, and then all the real training happens in the other class. So she's like, there's no reason why the women can't train in a regular class. Why would you separate them? And that's been our philosophy. We don't separate them. Women train in the same class as ours. And it made, it made perfect sense. Like, when you look at it, um, you know, like obviously the WNBA does not have the ratings that the NBA does. The same with women's soccer, so on and so forth. And and they're they're most of the time their male counterparts don't see them as equals. And when you take MMA, wrestling, jujitsu, they see females as their equals. And I think the reason for that is because we all train in the same room. So the NBA guys are always going to feel as if they're training harder than the WNBA girls. For us, we're sharing the same room, whether it's wrestling, jujitsu, or MMA. We're sharing the same room with the girls. We know that they're working equally as hard as us, putting in the same blood, sweat, and tears in that room. 
And I think that's why there's so much admiration in combat sports for the women competitors, where you would say wrestling, jujitsu, MMA, kickboxing, barbaric, they probably have no respect for women. It's actually the complete opposite. It's because we share the same training quarters all the time. We have nothing but admiration for them. We see how hard they train. We go with them. So we have a better understanding of how much effort energy they're actually putting into everything. And, uh, I think that's led to a very successful women's program for us. Interesting. Um, you know, a lot of people told me to have women's only classes and it's, the idea of that kind of didn't sit well with me. And it's, it's glad it, it makes me happy to see that you have the same mindset. It's like, we're all equals. And even in, uh, I, I know that, um, we were talking about this on TV that some of the highest grossing UFC shows were the ones where Ronda Rousey was headlining it. So yes. MMA, yeah, MMA really kind of showed the world that it's not women's and men's, it's just MMA. And if you happen to be the more exciting fighter, Ronda Rousey, extremely exciting. I always look forward to watching your fight. One of the highest grossing sellers. So I totally agree with you on that part. Yeah, and it's even wrestling, like Helen Marula, she has wrestling shoes. You know, she's not treated any different than the men. Women's grappling. I mean, everybody knows who Gabby Garcia or Elizabeth Clay are. They're household names in grappling. Like, everyone knows these names. Like, And that's because I think we share the same room with them. You know, we know how hard they work. Yeah, and even in tournaments, you know, um, you know, I, I sometimes I think I'm tough. I'll do, like, a grappling industries, and I'll have, like, 10 matches. Then I'll see Jordan just had like 14 matches and I'm like, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> much harder than what I just did, which is which is crazy. But um, yes. what, I, what I wanted to ask are some tips about like so so far, you know, include everyone as one. Do you do you do any type of promotions? Do you do any type of are there any rules that that, you know, can make uh, women feel more comfortable? about that i don't know what happened <laughs> so to answer your question do we have anything specific with the girls we do actually um the girls will tell you um yeah i'm very very protective of them um and that's all the girls in the academy and that's that could be my father instincts i have two i have five kids three boys two girls oh wow um, so i'm i'm uh, very protective of the girls and, and they'll tell you that so what we do with them is the girls are allowed to choose their training partners. So it's not a free for all. And I tell them all that they need to be vocal and they need, that's okay to be vocal and say, listen, I don't want to train with you. Cause as you know, as much as you preach in the Academy, there are some people that are just training with the females. Maybe they go a little bit too hard. Maybe, you know, they're a little bit spazzy or, or something like that. So the girls have free reign to choose their training partner. So like, um, let's say they're not comfortable training with somebody. They don't train with them. They just say, I'm not training with you today. And we make that clear to be vocal ahead of time. And I, even what I'll do is just so it doesn't put them in a bad position. I have a rough idea who they like to train with, who they don't. And I'll set their rounds up two or three in a row. Like I'll be like, okay, Jordan, for today, you're going with this person, this person, then that person. I'll say Gabby, Chelsea, whoever it is, uh, you know, Victoria, you'll be going with this person, this person, and this person. And I'll set their rounds up. I'm definitely, and, and again, it's to a fault. I'm probably more protective of the girls than I am the guys. Um, but that's also because I want to make sure that they have a safe training environment and that they continue to come. 
and, and everyone knows if, if, uh, you know, anything inappropriate happens with the girls, um, you know, you're gone. You know, we, 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 uh, we don't allow that at the Academy. Um, you know, we want to have a comfortable training environment for them. Um, you know, if there's anyone that's feeling really weird about, let's say, and, and you know, this is tough because grappling has a lot of, uh, you know, touching. Yeah. We have a talk with the girls anymore. You know, and then because sometimes you could, if it escalates beyond that, then you have to go. Our our, our commitment is, you know, we want to make sure that girls are, you know, in a safe training environment because you never know why your females are. Interesting. Um, can you hear me? Yes, I got you. Hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Keep you can keep going. We want the girls to be protected. We don't want them to ever be in an environment where, you know, they're, they don't feel comfortable. Interesting. Um, so what I've been doing, just like you said, I've been, you know, when someone's new, I'll pick the first couple rounds for them. I'll put them with the lighter guys who I know are a little more controlled. And then I've had students after like a month or two of being with me, like, you know, I'm, I'm cool to pick my rounds now. And once they feel comfortable, I kind of let them do whatever. Um, so it's definitely a very good piece of advice that you said to, to help people by picking their rounds for them. Yeah, especially those, and it doesn't even matter size so much because, you know, I'll have Jordan, Gabby, I'll have, you know, Chelsea, I'll have the girls go with Anthony Malagudi, who's, you know, 235 pounds and, uh, you know, ferocious competitor, but he knows how to control it. He's, he's fantastic training with the girls. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Um, so, you know, now that I kind of have a, a good idea about, you know, the way you, um, you, the way you coach as far as competition and stuff, I was wondering, you said you're there like six to seven days a week. Uh, what, what do you do to help yourself not get burnt out? Because I'm assuming you have morning classes, evening classes. It must be tough on your sleep schedule, your life schedule. So one of my, my greatest asset is also my greatest fault. There's no doubt about it. And that is my, you know, my workaholic mentality and my OCD mentality. Um, I never get burnt out. I never get bored of this. I can, I, they will tell you, I will be there nonstop. It, it, I'll take the morning class, privates, kids classes, adults class, wrap it up. And literally when I get home, second I get home, I spend one hour a day film studying. I study film for one hour every single day. I can't get enough of it. Honestly, there's not enough hours in the day for me to be able to squeeze in all the grappling that I want to do. Um, so I do know some people get burnt out. I have the exact opposite effect. I literally don't see that there's enough hours in the day for me to continue to do it. Now, what I do do though, is I take extreme care of myself. Um, They'll tell you. So as I've gotten older, I'm in my mid forties now. Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that I do is, uh, I sleep very well. I go to bed late, I'll wake up, but I'll generally crash on the mats in between classes. Like I'll, I'll make sure I get my eight hours of sleep. It may not be straight through, but I may get seven and then like one hour at the gym or something. I'll always make sure I get my, uh, eight hours of sleep. I eat extraordinarily healthy. They'll tell you that at the, at the Academy, like I'm very, very healthy in, in all my choices. And I live a very stable life outside of the Academy. I don't drink alcohol. 
I don't do drugs. I haven't done them. I, I avoid them. They'll tell you they never see me, you know, drinking or anything. And I have a very stable relationship. So my wife is fantastic, which is a huge part of this. Like, because I don't have any conflict with my wife, there's no stress really. So we get along very well. I have no issues, nothing but the best things to say about my wife. <clears throat> and we just click very well. She, she understands that my job is demanding and she lets me do what I do. And um, not having that negative stress, but in your life, which some people do have with their counterpart, I have the opposite. I have, you know, a wife that helps build me up. So um, I, I think that helps just having very few distractions outside of the Academy and having, everything that I have be positive, you know, like, uh, my relationship is good, no alcohol, no drugs. Like, I, I think that's big. And the other thing, which, um, you know, I know is very rare for jujitsu is as I've gotten older, I have reduced how often I train with larger training partners. Mm -hmm. Um, and I probably predominantly will not really train with too many people larger than me anymore. I almost never do it. Um, you know, I'll drill stuff with them and I'll go over stuff, but as far as hard live roles go, I no longer go with anybody larger than me. And that's just because, uh, I don't want to risk being injured. I can't, I don't want to be out for it. And I go hard. They'll tell you I'm on those mats every day. I train live every single class. I am on those mats all the time. Oh, wow. But I do re reduce, how often I'm training with larger opponents now, just because as I'm getting older, I got to make sure I'm not 20 anymore. I'm not even 30 anymore. I'm not even 40 anymore. I'm older than 40. So it's like, I have to be somewhat cautious about suffering any sort of major injury. Not that it can't happen with a smaller person. It certainly can, but it's greatly reduced. And um, I, I think that's one thing that jujitsu is lacking. And that is just understanding that there's weight classes for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. You know, everyone, everyone says, you know, jujitsu, you know, you're using their weight against them and it's all about leverage. But at the end of the day, you take two guys with equal skill level, the bigger, stronger guy is going to win. Right. Yeah. And, and you know what it is, too? I think this is a huge era jujitsu. Jujitsu is only around, you know, 100 and some years. Um, why not look at wrestling? Wrestling has been around probably since humans have existed yeah. but at the very at the very least it's been organized and structured for thousands of years so why not take all their faults that they've made over the last couple thousand years and let's just follow their lead like and i'll often tell even my students like jujitsu has this weird session with absolutes and things like that and to me i don't understand it i go and i'll often use the example of the young man that's been in our academy nick suriano nick suriano Nobody would doubt it. You know, he has a good shot at winning the 125-pound weight class this weekend for the NCAA wrestling. He's the returning NCAA champion. He is tough as nails. He's the best I've ever seen in front of me. But if he wrestles Gable Stevens, who's probably <laughs> going to win the heavyweight division easily, like you would never say Nick isn't good because he can't beat Gable Stevenson. You would never even allow Nick to wrestle Gable Stevenson. That would be so insane to have Nick Suriano wrestle gable stevenson that and you would never justify nick's skills against gable and gable would never justify how good his skills are by going against nick because their weight classes are so extreme from one another but in jiu-jitsu they justify that matchup like that's an okay matchup to have and it's not a good representation of either person's skills um if that match took place in wrestling if, if nick went against gable 
yeah, it's it's people like to see it like a spec like a spectacle, you know, the same way people like to see Kimbo Slice versus so and so, you know. Yeah, and it's it's not even spectacle. It's it's almost understood in jujitsu. You should have absolutes, and little guys should go against big guys. Like, and I don't ever see the merit to it. I'm like, well, Nick Suriano would never train with the heavyweight at whatever university he's going, or he'll never train with the heavyweight at the Olympic Training Center. And hard live goes, and and <laughs> and that's that sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. It makes zero sense whatsoever. But a jitsu would be like, oh, I can't beat that guy. Like that's of course he can. He out, you know, he's double his size. Of course yeah. he can't beat. I think I think that's um that's a mentality we need really need really need to work on. Um I have a lot of big guys at my gym. And um, you know, it, it kind of have become like a bouncer gym because a lot of bouncers come to me for training. And I, I just tell, I tell the big guys, like, if you want to have training partners, if someone lighter than you asks to roll with you, you, you got to be controlled. But when you go with guys your own size, have at it. You guys have a barn burner. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, and I agree. We're lucky. Our big guy, you know, our big guys, we have quite a few of them as well. And, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, Anthony or Scott or, you know, Professor Baxter, or, you know, Big J, like – uh, we have, you know, sit, uh, another kid that's going to be a stud. Look out for him, Sam Santander. He's going to be tough. Uh, but there's a bunch of the big guys. They're some of the most trustworthy guys. I'm not going to lie. They're, they're very, very good. Everybody, I can have them roll with everybody. Um, and they're, they're really good. Like, they'll, they'll control it. Uh, yeah, I can't, I couldn't have asked for a better big guy group. That's amazing. That, that's good that you're building that type of um, environment for the bigger guys. So we figured out how you don't, how you don't burn yourself out uh, and how you teach. I always wondered, cause I don't really know anything about this. What's your training background? I heard you have a wrestling background. What's your training background? Uh, who did you train under? Where did you train? If you want to fill us in with that. Yeah. So I've, I've always been involved in sports. My father was uh, big on us doing all sports, um, you know, wrestling, boxing, um, Everything, you know, he was like, he did these, these, he was big on doing sports. I personally fell in love with the individual sports, um, you know, boxing, wrestling, Thai boxing, and then later on, jujitsu. Um, my jujitsu started when, uh, yeah, I would imagine probably like everybody my age, you know, I was in high school when the first UFC came out and it was 1993. And, you know, my father was a huge boxer and uh, loved boxing, had me in boxing early on. And uh, he's like, we're going to watch this new, they're fighting in a cage. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be spectacular. And uh, we watch it and I'm like, yeah, that sucked. I'm like, I'm like this little guy in the gi, this Brazilian guy just beat up everybody without even really punching him. I'm like, I'm like, he got lucky. So then, you know, comes around and then Hoist Gracie comes out and does the same exact thing. And I'm second, this is now getting crazy. And we used to order every boxing pay-per-view, every UFC pay-per-view. And yeah, at this time I'm a teenager. And then it wasn't until the fourth UFC, because I kept telling my dad and my dad kept agreeing. We were like, wait till he fights a wrestler. He's going to lose. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, you know, he comes out and 
he fights Dan Severn in the finals, who was a very accomplished wrestler. And, you know, I'm watching the match with my dad, and I remember vividly the broadcast went out for a few minutes because it exceeded the three-hour time slot, and then it came back on, and all of a sudden, Dan Severn taps out. And I'm like, that's fake. I'm like, that's fake. I'm like, he's fine, because I didn't understand the triangle joke. I had no idea what was happening. Uh-huh. And after I saw that, I turned to my dad, and, you know, after at first and then when you know reality hit me and i finally accepted it that it was real i'm like this gets stuff's amazing i'm like i need to learn it and you know my father was huge in the sports and he's like we'll find you a place we'll find you a place and at this time it's like 1995 there's nowhere to train jujitsu like uh there's no internet or at least in my household there was in my family you know there my father was older when he had us like i had no internet i had no way of working the internet back then i'm sure it existed but it just wasn't very prevalent um so my father sought out and sought out and sought out and, and uh tried to find somebody and eventually we found the guy that was a blue belt um a couple towns away but he had very limited knowledge and there wasn't a whole lot he could show like he would show um you know some moves but you know not really a whole lot like and it, yeah, it was like minimal learning like this again and he was he was completely frank about it. he really didn't know anything either he just happened to be you know, a random blue belt. Um, and it wasn't until um, later on, but before that, actually, I always say like the one thing that had a profound effect on me was, and I, I could be misquoting by, you know, like a word or two, but it was after the first UFC or second UFC, I can't remember which one it was after Hoist Gracie had won uh, Jim Brown, the, the analyst team was all martial artists. And then there was Jim Brown who played a hall of fame football player. And, at the end of the broadcast, when Hoyce Gracie had won, Jim Brown said, fighting is not what we thought it was. And it's a statement that has rung true with me so much because we thought fighting, and again, you're younger than me, but my age, man, we thought fighting was the karate kid and you know, kung fu and stuff. And yeah. it wasn't until, and, and Jim Brown said what was on all of our minds that some small guy in a gi gra- out grappled everybody, you know, it was like amazing. So fast forward to, you know, like 1999, 2000, uh, late 99, early 2000. Um, um, I, I meet Alan Teo. I don't know if you know, Alan, he's, uh, uh, Henzo black belt, long time black belt. Yeah. He has Uh, two gyms, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So I meet Alan and we start talking about, you know, uh, jujitsu and, you know, everything else. He was training jujitsu at the time and he was going to, um, he was actually, wasn't at Henzo's. He was at another school. And then I started doing some research and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm like, Henzo has an Academy in New York city. And that's where I'm going to go. I want to start training. And then I, w- I went into Henzo's in uh, the city, late 99, early 2000. Oh, wow. and, uh, and, and that's, uh, you know, when I started my jujitsu. So you and were then, in the same room as my instructor, John. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. John was a purple belt when I got there. Oh, nice. So, he was a purple belt. Matt Serra was brown. Rodrigo Gracie was black. Sean Williams was purple. Henzo was black. Ricardo Almeida was black. Um, and uh, they they were the main instructors. And you know, I, I kind of consider my I consider myself extraordinarily lucky when it comes to coaching. So, you know, that was that was um, you know my first ever exposure to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It wasn't like some terrible academy and then this happened it was you know to, to me the greatest academy on planet earth um and 
you know, this I, I got so, this was right on top of the methadone clinic, right? Correct. Yes, that's where it was. Right above. I always like to say instead of the methadone clinic, I would always like to say it was above Grace Papaya. So <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it was above the Grace Papaya over there. And I, I always consider myself fortunate. And then uh, I lived in New Jersey. And then I don't know if you know Jamal Patterson. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was on the podcast, too. Okay, so I love Jamal. Nothing but positive things to say about Jamal. Um, so Jamal opened up an academy um, with Alan Teo in New Jersey, uh, Hemzo Academy. And, uh, you know, obviously the, it was right by my house. So, you know, the obvious answer is now start training there. You well, know, that's what town. So their first one initially was in Saddlebrook, which is, dude, you want to talk about like six degrees to separation, I can go on forever. But it was their initial academy was in a, a school. I, I, it wasn't called Apex then, but it was essentially, I can't remember what it was called, but it was the Apex Wrestling Guys um, Wrestling School. So they opened up there, and I'm like, man, this is perfect. I'm going to train there. And, you know, I can't say enough things about Alan and Jamal. Um, you know, fantastic guys. You know, unbelievable. I, you know, uh, I, I continued my training uh, with those guys and, uh, you know, still to this day, extraordinarily tight. I mean, you know, huge influence, uh, on my game. You know, Jamal is really, uh, an outstanding instructor as is Alan. And then just like I said, long story short, what makes it even crazier is that it was an apex wrestling, um, which is where Damien Logan is, um, who, who I really consider, you know, one of the best wrestling coaches there around, uh, so much so that my own kids train wrestling with him. And, you know, that's where I actually met Damian Logan, who I consider a close friend now as well. And, you know, a person that I could talk to about wrestling and different techniques and different ideas. So when you break it down, I, I you know, as just some regular guy that started training jiu-jitsu, I mean, my jiu-jitsu exposure has been John, Henzo, you know, huh. Matt Serra at the time, Rodrigo Gracie, Jamal Patterson, Alan Taylor. And my wrestling exposure, you know, uh, it, it has been primarily, you know, Damian Logan and Jeff Buxton. And Buxton is another guy that's considered one of the greatest wrestling coaches. Wow. So, you know, you want to talk about just, you know, the availability of meeting great minds and, and, uh, and getting lucky. And, you know, like, it, it, the tra- like I said, that six degree separation, the trend just keeps continuing. Like, uh, even when I was really into strength and conditioning, um, there's a guy named Martin Rooney. I don't know if you know who Martin Rooney is, but he's like, he writes, you know, books for Harper Collins and everything. He's one of the most sought after strength and conditioning coaches. Yeah. And me and Martin became super tight to the point that we stay in contact today. Every time, you know, he writes a book, I'm in the acknowledgement. So like my training has been, you know, the top people in the world from the start. I've only been surrounded. Like most people can say, hey, I've had 10 shitty coaches. I've had, 10 world-class coaches, you know, and I consider myself extremely lucky for that. Did you, did you grow up wrestling like in elementary high school? Yes. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed it. I loved, I loved, uh, you know, the grappling. I love boxing. Um, I love Muay Thai, you know, I love everything. And and that town did you grow up in? So, uh, we, we moved quite a bit. So I, I lived in Hudson County at some, at one point, Mm -hmm. um, and I lived there a, a lot of my life. And then I lived in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. But, and even, even if you get into like, a, not again, keep going with lucky coaches. Even when it came to Thai boxing, when I started Thai boxing, my Thai boxing was with 
um, a guy named Kunstock. I don't know if you know him. He's over in Pompton oh, Lakes yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's but he's one of the greatest tie boxing coaches of all time, you know, yeah. or one of the greatest tie boxers of all time. And, you know, I train with him. So I, I've, I've just been extraordinarily lucky with the way everything has worked out. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Um, yeah, I've been, you know, the first – first coaches it was it was a little rough start but as soon as i joined henzo's you know the the the, um, the way the people train the instruction i got my 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 entire career had a had a really big takeoff there and i'm and i'm really um uh, really in debt to uh, henzo gracie academy for sure did you did you end up getting your black belt under henzo or jamal no actually i went all the way up to um uh, like Brown with, uh, you know, Jamal Henzo, and then uh, ended up uh, uh, got my black belt under Carl Massaro. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah, I've been over at that school too. Carl's an amazing instructor. Yeah, no, very much. Yeah, that's a, yeah. Henzo Gracie Northern Valley is is great. Um, so one thing with us Henzo schools, I know. You know, we're all part of a big affiliation. You know, we're always welcome to train, cross-train amongst fellow affiliates. Um, so I was wondering, what are your thoughts on cross-training with other schools, um, affiliated schools, non-affiliated schools? What's your take on that? Because that's a big, hot topic in jujitsu today. Yes, it is. And it's funny because, uh, you know, I always say I, I, I generally get, a, you know, a lot of shit for this because it's not – you know, the jujitsu way, um, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, Henzo schools, you they take those out of the equation. Any, anyone from, you know, like I said, we get a lot of visitors from Henzo schools, you know, we accept them. Um, but anyone else from outside of Henzo schools, we don't accept them. Um, and I get a lot of shit for this. And people tell me all the time, it's not the jujitsu way. It's not the jujitsu way. Um, and what I tell them is, I don't have any time to vet this person. This person could be completely bonkers. You know, how do I know? Like, you know, if somebody signs up, you know, for a trial, they go through a trial, they go through several classes before they're allowed to, you know, train. Um, and I always tell them like the jujitsu way is not paying my bills. Like at the end of the day, I have to feed my family and put a roof over my head. And, you know, just having random people we don't know stopping in this academy takes away from the family atmosphere. What we end up with potentially could be somebody come in, go way too nuts, test themselves against one of my guys or girls and tear their ACL. And that's not something I'm willing to risk, you know, and it's, it's far easier for me just to have a policy where we don't accept them. Now, different story. Like we have people come in from Henzo schools all the time because they've been vetted, you know, like we would, you know, if we have a gentleman comes in from uh, Henzo Gracie Fort Lauderdale when he's up, because obviously you know, those guys wouldn't send them up here if they thought he was completely bonkers, you know, and we take them, but we just don't take random walk-ins and people get upset with that. And, I, and here's what I get all the time. They'll tell, they always tell me, I'll give you a $20 mat fee. And I explained to him, I said, listen, I said, if you walked on here for $20, I better get a hundred emails from my members. I said, my members are paying a premium to train here. They're paying a lot more than $20 to train here. For you to come in and think you have the same rights for 20 bucks that they have for a monthly fee, you are out of your mind. I said, your 20 bucks isn't going to make or break me, but you could come in here and potentially injure one of my members. And 
it's too difficult to vet them. It's, it's, you know, they, they could be there for the wrong reasons. So it's a lot easier to say, no, we're not going to take them. So although some people get offended by that and they're like, that's not the jitsu way. I, you know, I always say like, I treat our Academy like they're professional athletes. If some guy on the streets wanted to walk into the New York giants facility and say, I'm going to practice with the giants, he'd be arrested. They'd be like, what are you doing? You're not doing this. And for us, I view all these athletes, whether they compete, not compete, whether they're just because they're a lawyer or a doctor, e- even more so with those guys that are lawyers, surgeons, doctors, they can't get injured training with some maniac. You know, this is their, their livelihood. And we know everyone inside the academy wouldn't do that to you. We know no one would hold a submission too long. Nobody would purposely try to injure you. I don't know that with a walk-in. I just don't. I have, I, nor can anyone say I trust this guy enough. And one of the things we have, and I think we, our skill level is so good, is everybody trains with each other because there's no fear of anyone getting injured. Interesting. You know, I, I've had a couple issues with that. Um, I used to be very liberal with the walk-ins, and then I had someone come in and as a walk-in and was acting a little weird. And then I asked about him and I found out he got kicked out of his previous three schools because he would have meltdowns. So, you know, now that I look back on it, I'm like, you know, I was wondering if I should make take a a little bit more conservative approach uh, for the safety of my own students. But you you brought up a a couple of really good points about that. And and listen, I've had people come in on Thanksgiving because, you know, I've had people come in on Thanksgiving and say, oh, I'm visiting the family. But I don't know you like I, I. you could come here and if you, if you were here for a trial class, yes, we see you for a trial, you get through a couple of classes and you go live, we could kind of vet and see how, what type of person you are. But I, I, I just can't justify to my members who are paying top dollar to train at my Academy that 20 bucks gives this person the same rights to that math that they have, you know, and my members should be pissed. Like they, they should say, well, why is this guy pay 20 bucks and he could train here? While I'm paying, you know, a hundred and whatever bucks a month, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't see how this is justified. And and they would be perfectly right. And you can't just do that, you know, randomly at, at at any other professional sports organization. I can't go into the Olympic Training Center. I can't go to Penn State and say I want to wrestle in your room. Yeah. I, you know, if I showed up in Colorado Springs and said, "Hey, I want to go start wrestling the Olympians for wrestling," they'd laugh at me. They'd say, "No way, you're not, you're not coming in." We uh, I know that um. You know, John is a little more liberal, but I know Gary Tonin was telling me the cross training it could it could be uh, detrimental. I remember Roberto Jimenez came and trained with us for like a full month, and then uh, one month later he went against one of our own guys, Nicky Rod, and he beat him. And I'm sure a lot of the he he kind of knew everyone's game, and that helped him win. So it could hurt you both in the competition world and as far as your regular members. So I could totally see. Uh, where you're coming from with that and then I just wanted to also ask um, at, so it seems like the the key to success as a gym owner is the work ethic the family environment but now let's talk about the sales aspect and the marketing aspect do you do you hire a lead company a website developer um, are you the person that does the sales or do you have a salesperson do it for the tri- the trial classes and the um, getting more members so oddly enough i pretty much do everything uh-huh. <laughs> it's like 
It's insane. Like the, my, my workload never ends. Uh, number one, we actually don't do any marketing, believe it or not. Like I know a lot of people pay people for marketing. We actually do no marketing. Like oh, wow. there's a sign on our door and, and we just get after it and it's word of mouth. It's, it's honestly, we, we, we provide such an awesome product that the members love it. And then they, they, they tell other people about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they bring in just more and more people. They're like, man, you're not gonna believe how awesome it is here. And they, they just continue to bring in more and more people, um, you know, for the training aspect. And it's, that has been fantastic. I honestly, I have the best members. I know everybody says that, but we really do. They, there's not, there's almost not a member there that hasn't brought somebody else in. And that's where we do all that. As far as sales go, I do all the sales. I mean, my wife does some of it as well. I'm not gonna lie, but my wife has a full-time job as well. But when she's available, she'll jump in and do the sales uh, as well. But I actually, I'm, it's, it's like, it's literally like an episode of like, again, I'm going to date myself, but there was like a seat there was a skit in a living color where like the one family did like a million things at the same job place. And it's like that with me. I do all the sales. I do all the teaching. I do everything. Wow. That that's amazing. And, uh, I'm surprised you don't burn out, but it's that, that trait you have the OCD trait, the workaholic trait. Um, so as far as your sales go, do you have any tips for that or do you pretty much, is it cut and dry? They come in. Do you want to sign up or not? Do you have so, any? Go ahead. What I do is I, I'm not, I, I tell them all, I'm not a used car salesman. Like I'm not, I, I, everybody respects the honesty. I tell everybody, I'm like, I'm not a used car salesman. I'm not going to hear the bullshit shit. The best thing to do is come in for a trial class. You're going to jump in on a trial class. You're going to take a free class, check it out. And at the end, we're going to talk and we'll see if it's, you know, if it's a good fit for you, if you enjoyed it, if you don't like it. And, uh, you know, I tell everybody like this, this is, you know, at at our Academy, what we're doing is we're teaching fantastic jujitsu here. We have an awesome community, but I'm not a pushy salesperson at all. It's the product kind of sells itself. And then the members are very friendly. People talk to them and they really do an awesome job selling it up. And that seems to work good, but I don't, I don't, I don't push people hard for sales. Like, and the other thing we do do, we do do membership agreements. Like I know some people are month to month. We don't do month to month. And there's a reason for that. Um, the main reason is I pay out of pocket for all of our seminars. So I don't charge a single dollar for any of our seminars. We've had Gary in, we've had Nikki Rod in, we've had, We've had Shane Griffith in, two NCA wrestling champions. We've had Joe Warren in, Bellator champion, world champion, a wrestler. I pay the entire cost. My members don't pay anything. I pay for all these seminars. So I tell them, I go, we just had Nikki Rod and um, uh, Joe Warren in the same month. This year alone, as far as three seminars we've had, we've had Hollis Gracie, We've had Shane Griffith, NCA champion. We've had, actually, I take it back. We've had Hollis Gracie twice. We've had Nikki Rod, uh, Joe Warren, and we've had Shane Griffith. All of those seminars are complete. And I take it back. And we have Frank Rosenthal. So all those seminars are paid out of pocket by me. And I tell them, I'm like, you would just sign up for a month, get to the Nikki Rod and Joe Warren seminar and leave like that. You know, and I'm not looking for a one-month commitment. I'm looking for 
want to be here. And I will continue to cover the cost of the seminars as a, as you know, a thank you to all my members because they're the best members. Like this is my best way of thanking them is bringing in some of the best people in the world for them to learn from. And, uh, you, you know, it, I, I just wouldn't, I, I don't need your money for a month. I, I'm looking more for long-term stability. That's kind of a big issue I've run into is a lot of people want to come. They want to just sign up for a month. Um, and then also a lot of people will come, they'll sign up for a year. And after three years, they're like, oh, you know, uh, I, I'm realizing this isn't for me, blah, blah, blah. And um, I don't have like, um, the only thing I have is my billing software. I don't really have a billing company. So what do you do when someone signs up for a year and then they say, oh, I don't know if it's for me anymore or if they just make up some excuse, uh, stuff like that. Like, how do you deal with that? So what I, what I tell everybody is, is, you know, I tell them ahead of time, like we've run out of space in my academy. There's no space. Like you could ask the member, there's no space in there. So I tell them all, you are taking the spot of somebody like you have to be willing to make a commitment. If they tell me they just want to train for a month, I've honestly told people, just do me a favor, then take your money and throw it out the window because <laughs> you're literally wasting your money. What is a month of jujitsu going to do? First off, you need a gi. The gi's over a hundred bucks. I'm like, you know, you're going to invest all this money in the equipment to train a month. I'm like, that's crazy. Mm. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Train a month, literally throw your money out the window because mm. there's, there's no benefit for you training a month. Like that's just not going to help you. Um, the sport is a marathon, not a sprint. It's, it's, it's the weirdest sport on planet earth. It takes you six months to get good. And then another 10 to get great. Like it is so weird. It's you, you get very, you know, accomplished in six, pretty, pretty solid in six months, but then it takes another nine and a half years to get great at it. It's, it's, it's such an odd sport. And, you know, I, I tell people, I'm like, if you're making the yearly commitment now, if somebody gets injured, they move or something like that, then obviously, um, you know, uh, they're, you know, I let them out of it, but I often use the example of a cell phone or a car. If I go and lease, you know, a Ford F-150 or even an F, let's say I, I lease an F-250 and now all of a sudden I don't like the fact that gas is high. <laughs> I can't just say, I guess what gas is high. I don't want the truck anymore. Like it doesn't work that way. Like oh this is no God. different. Or your, or, or your cell phone, like, you know, well, I'm not using as much to go tell Verizon. They're going to keep, they, they don't care. That's, you know, and it's, it's not, it's not that I, I, I'm not, you know, willing to listen to their needs. It's that there's also a business side where I have to feed my family from this. And if you're going to commit, especially now that we're going to start capping membership at some point, like you're now taking the spot of somebody else that wants to be here for 12 months. It's, it's, a, it's the worst when I deal with that. It's like, hey, I didn't really show up in November. Could you not charge me? I'm like, hey, uh, I didn't really charge. I didn't really use my phone too much in November because I was out yeah. of state. Do I tell Verizon not, uh, not to charge me? Like, that's not how things work. No, no, you could never. You call Verizon. So I didn't text this much this month, so I don't want to be charged. And they don't care. So um, one thing, I'm also outgrowing my space, so I'm trying to figure out where to go, how big of a space to get, et cetera, et cetera. Have you been in this space since day one? Have you had to move spaces? If you move to a bigger space, what strategies will you take? So this is our original location. This is where we started. Um, and it's awesome. I love it. Like We're right on Main Street in Warwick. 
we got parking across the street at the CVS lot. We got parking behind us. Uh, the building is so cool. It's it, the building was built in like 1882. Like wow. this is our original spot. We're on the third floor. Um, but again, when I opened up, obviously, uh, finances were an issue. I wanted to make sure the business would be successful. So I have a smaller space because I didn't want to have huge overhead when I opened up and go under like a lot of people do. So we started with as little overhead as possible, as cheap as we possibly could. And, uh, we have a small area. Uh, now we've hit the point where we have to expand. We just literally have outgrown the area. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's packed in there. Like there's a, people crashing into one another. So, um, yeah, we definitely have to move into a larger location. Yeah. So, um, I see in the pictures that it's packed. So it's nuts. Do you plan on staying in, in the Warwick, like, uh, within a one mile radius? Do you know how much bigger you're going to go for? Like what, what's your mindset on this? Cause I want to go into a bigger spot, but then again, the overhead's going to be higher. I'm, I kind of, figure i'm trying to figure out what the game plan should be so i was wondering what yours is so i love warwick i'll never leave listen the the, the town is awesome you know I, I love the area i love walking out we go for friday night team dinner we literally walk out onto main street we go to any of the numerous restaurants there mm-hmm. um and i i love the town of warwick so uh the other thing is uh, i'm not gonna lie i really like my landlord i know a lot of people have horror stories about their landlords my landlord's awesome. Like if I'm like, Hey, listen, the toilet's broke. The guy fixes it. If I'm like, Hey, the window's busted. The guy fixes it. Like, mm-hmm. um, I have the easiest to deal with landlord. Honestly, like he, I, I never see him, which is why it's a good thing. I never ever <laughs> see him. And it's like, uh, and I, I can't, I'm not gonna lie. I can't be an easy tenant. Like I'm up on the third floor. I'm probably miserable for the other businesses down below <laughs> me. And, uh, you know, uh, my landlord is great. So I would feel most comfortable staying with, with him. He does own other buildings in Warwick, literally right by ours. Um, so uh, that would be where I would go. It would be more, more than likely and like more of like a factory, like, like warehouse type, a little bit bigger and easier to expand. Um, and obviously a little bit cheaper than being right on main, you know, getting, you know, huge square footage on main street would be, uh, probably very expensive, uh, where I could have a build out or something a little bit more useful right off, you know, main street. That's kind of my goal too. I, I really love the warehouse, uh, type of vibe and that's what I'm going for. So that's kind of, that's kind of my mindset right now. So it, it was definitely glad to hear that, uh, that you're kind of looking for, for like the same type of environment. Um, main streets are really good, but, um, it, it, it does sometimes the attention is good, but also bad sometimes. Like I remember when COVID. I was about to say during COVID, it wasn't good. I liked it any time other than COVID. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all the warehouse gyms, they just boarded up their one window and they were good to go. The, the, the main street gyms, uh, there's no way you could, you could hide the fact that there's training, you know? No, we couldn't. That was tough. Yeah, that was tough. Um, well, man, that was a wealth of information. I really appreciate it. Um, and I really look forward to visiting you guys soon. For sure. Is is there any last things you want to say to the listeners? Uh, nothing. Just, you know, my goal is with my members is, is to kind of show them, uh, the, I was going to say in closing is just, you know, my goal is to open up my, you know, my members eyes to how fantastic jujitsu is and, 
you know, hopefully some of them end up with the same love that I have and obsession that I have, um, you know, for the sport. And, uh, you, you know, you, you will always hear that term, jiu-jitsu has changed my life. But for me, it truly has. It's, it's kind of been just that steady thing that's carried me through every difficult time, every good time. You know, and in life, like I said, there's so many ups and downs. And jujitsu has been that one steady that's been able to allow me to deal with, you know, the most difficult times, but also be able not to get too excited about the best times, you know, be able to control, um, you know, my emotions. And it, it's, it, I couldn't imagine my life without it. And I, this is a 100% factual statement. If, and, I, and everybody, People, half the people probably aren't going to believe me, but if, if somebody, you know, came up to me today and said, I'll give you a suitcase with $2 million cash, but all you have to do is every jujitsu skill you ever learned, every memory you have from grappling, every person you've ever met, every interaction would have to go away instantly the second you took the money, I wouldn't take it. It's, it's, you know, and I could never do jujitsu again. Like I, I would never even contemplate taking that money it would it's just something that you can't buy and you know the final thing that i'll say is um you know i honestly have to thank my members um you know if any of them are listening please man listen i love you guys um we've been through some tough times like i said when we went through covid and we had you know we were locked down i'm in, I'm in new york you're in new jersey but my area was very heavy-handed with the lockdown uh very strict with it um you know my members uh you know they kept paying their bill they kept paying their monthly membership. I am forever grateful for them. And people always say they have the best members. I am telling you, like, you know, I, I truly do have fantastic members, unbelievable members. I can't thank them enough. Yeah, the uh, the the money for the jujitsu skill was something I also have been asked, and I wouldn't accept any amount of money in the world to lose it and not do it again. So thank you so much again for coming back. And I look forward to having you back on and definitely see you at a tournament soon, man. Thanks again. You got it. Take care, Mike. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I learned so much. Dave is definitely a very intelligent and very unique, amazing human being. So I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I hope you learned a lot from it. And I hope you take bits and parts of that episode, whether you're a competitor, business owner, whatever, and that you apply that to your life. Guys, don't forget to share this episode. Rate my podcast five stars. Please visit my Instagram at K-O-O-L-R-A-K at Immortals Jiu-Jitsu and at Rambling with Rack. Check out my website, ImmortalsJiuJitsu.com for some merch and instructionals. Also, feel free to come by the gym and take a free trial class. All right, guys, thank you for listening. Thanks you for your constant support, and I will see you soon.